We began a series of messages taking our church to the next level. I'd like to focus on taking missions to the next level. Missions, that is, reaching those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, does not begin with giving and does not begin with going. Missions begins with the heart. If we consider what is called uh, the gospel in a nutshell, John 3.16, we see that very clearly. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent his son to pay the price for our sin so that the lost might be found and saved. Now, we can talk a lot about missions, and we can give a lot to missions, and here we do both of those. We can even go on mission trips from time to time, which we also do. But if we want salvation for lost humanity to be the driving force or a driving force in our lives and in the life of our church, it will begin in the heart. Do we love like God loved those who are lost, do we love them more than our toys, more than our hobbies, more than our luxuries, more than our lifestyle? This morning I want to challenge us to consider whether our love for the lost, our heart for the lost is in sync with God's heart. And whether our priorities mesh with his priorities. And I want to make you this promise. This message will be as hard for me to preach as it will be for you to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to hear your word and be changed by it. We don't want to change your word. Make it so, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It is said that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that the way to our hearts, as far as God is concerned, is through his revelation of himself and his will. When God speaks to us, reveals himself and his will in an unmistakable way, when God reveals to us what his heart is, then we are prime candidates to have our hearts broken and reshaped by his hands. The Bible states very clearly that God is love. But you know the Bible also says that God is holy. And it says that God will punish sin. These on the surface don't appear to be able to fit fit together very well, but, but they aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, it makes perfect sense. You see, God loves us, but we have a problem, and that problem is sin. And that sin separates us from God, and God must punish sin because he is a holy God. That in and of itself would lead us to a desperate situation, exactly what Gene Bradley was singing about. If it weren't for grace, I can tell you where I'd be. 
I'd be lost. And so God, in his love, sent his son to pay the price, to receive the punishment for your sin and for mine. That's how much he loved you. That's how much he wanted to be reconciled to you. So that the word of God says this, he, that is Jesus, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus took the payment for your sin and for mine. That is how God just brought all the pieces together. His love and his holiness fit together at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now here, here is the premise of my message. Let me give, you the, give me the kernel right here. If we are not convinced that mankind is eternally lost apart from Jesus Christ, we will neither have the heart nor the will to reach those who do not know him. If we are not convinced that mankind is lost apart from Christ, then we're not going to have the heart nor the will to reach them. Now, where do we start? Well, let's begin with a question. Are people basically good or evil? Interesting question. Are they good or evil? Now, we would like to think that people are basically good. That they, they want to do the right thing, but they just mess up from time to time. And we might even go so far to say there were even people who liked Hitler, Genghis Khan, and Joseph Stalin, who found at least some redemptive qualities in them, something to like about them. But what does Scripture say? Well, to, the Bible teaches that, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. But what does that mean? Does it mean that all of us are basically good, but we mess up from time to time? Or does it reflect something deeper? Something that affects every aspect of who we are. If we look at the view of the Calvinist, for instance... The Calvinists would use the term called total depravity. Well, that sounds pretty nasty. Total depravity. What is that? We don't like that term. The concept of being totally depraved. We don't think of ourselves as totally depraved. We don't think of other people as totally depraved. Yeah, they're messed up. They're kind of crispy around the edges. But, but totally depraved? They're not as bad as they could possibly be, are they? Well... Let me consider a different terminology, a different way of thinking about it that may not be any less palatable, that apart from Christ, humanity is corrupt at its very core. There's something wrong with the heart of humanity. There is a corruption on the inside of us that leads us to selfishness, that leads us to rebellion, that leads us to acts of cruelty, whether great or small. There is something that we are born with, a corruption that we inherit because of it, that we can call a sin nature. And we can do all the religious things all the works things to try to fix up the outside. But if the core is not changed, if the heart is not changed, if we do not become a new creation in Jesus Christ, then we're just as lost as if we'd never done any of those things. We may look better to our community. 
People may say nicer things about us. People may even give us Christmas gifts because we're a little nicer. But on the inside, if we don't have a new heart, if we're not a new creation, if the old nature isn't gone, then we're just as lost as we were from the beginning. You say, that sounds pretty serious. Well, let's listen to what God's Word says about it. See if what I'm saying fits with what He says. In Romans chapter 3, we read this. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Now, we're thinking apart from Christ, that's humanity. In Ephesians chapter 2, as for you, you were, what's that word? Dead in your transgressions and sins. It didn't get much worse than that. And in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, it says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It's not getting better, is it? We are corrupt. We are dead. And we deserve the wrath of God because of that corruption. Apart from Christ, that is the plight of humanity. And if we do not grasp that, if we do not understand that, if we do not, like, do not let God convince us of that, then we will not have the heart or the will to reach them. There is hope, of course. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter said of Jesus, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is hope. There is salvation, but it is found in only one person, and that is Jesus Christ. So what is the end? We, we know what the end for those of us who are in Christ is. We, we get to go to heaven and live forever with God, and we have a relationship with him, and that's all cool. But do we, know, do we know what the plight is for those who die without Christ? We don't have to guess at it. It says in Revelation chapter 20, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You do not get your name in the book by doing more good works than your neighbor. You do not get your name in the book by attending church more than the rest of your family. The only way that your name is inscribed in that book, the only way is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, accepting what God has done for you in Christ. That's it. The Bible tells us there is no other way. And if you and I cannot grasp the truth that people are eternally lost apart from Jesus, then we will never have a real 
heartbeat for missions. Now, it's not a pleasant thing to think about people lost, dying, and going to hell. But if you and I choose because it's uncomfortable, if we choose to believe something else, then we're having to jettison part of God's truth. Push it aside, stick it in a closet where it won't bother us so much. But the father was so serious about it that he went to extreme measures to reach lost humanity. He sent his son to pay the price to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. There was no other way to do it that was consistent with the character of God. The cross, as heinous as it is, is where we see the love and the holiness and the justice of God come together. Early in my experience as a Christian, I was confronted with the story of Jim Elliot. Philip James Elliot, born 1926. His father was an itinerant evangelist. Very often they had missionaries that would come visit them in the homes. And Jim would have the opportunity to hear the stories of these missionaries. He would hear about the harrowing, dangerous environment that they worked in, but he would also hear the stories of people who'd never known Jesus Christ, coming to faith in Christ, of churches being established and planted in places where there had never been a church before. At age eight, Jim received Christ as Savior. During his teenage years, he began to have a heart for missions. As a matter of fact, he was an exceptional athlete, but he viewed athletics in a way differently than, than we might on a football Friday night. He viewed athletics as a way to keep his body in shape so that when he went to face the rigors of the mission field, he would be ready to handle it. He enrolled in Wheaton College in 1948. Two years later, God began to work in his heart. He laid on his heart a a tribe, a remote tribe in Ecuador called the Huaharani. They were also called the Aucas. Aucas meant savages. And on July 26, 1952, Jim wrote this in his journal. Oh, for a faith that sings. Lord God, give me a faith that will take sufficient quiver out of me so that I may sing over the Aucas, Father. I want to sing. Jim continued his preparations for the mission field. He spent time in Ecuador learning the Quinto language. In 1953, he married Elizabeth Howard. To show you how committed they were to missions, the entire wedding ceremony was done in Quinto. Jim, Pete Fleming, Roger Yaderin, Ed McCauley, and missionary pilot Nate Saint and their wives moved near the Aukens to an abandoned airstrip. They worked very hard to learn the Aukens language so that they might communicate with them. And then they began a series of missionary flights. They flew over the village and they would circle the village and And they would circle it in such a way that they could lower a basket and the basket would stay relatively in the center of that circle as they flew around. And they were able to lower a basket that had gifts in it. And there would be plastic cups, there would be knives, there would be shirts, there would be things like that in the basket. And after a period of time, the Aukens began to send things back up. 
In fact, once they sent a parrot back in the basket that became a pet. And they began to establish this relationship. And after a period of time, they, they began to fly lower. And they'd use a little bit of the Auckland language that they knew. And they would shout out from the plains, we're your friends. We would like to visit you. This went on for about two months. They found a strip of beach that was near the river, which was near where the Auckland's were. And they, they decided they were going to land the plane. And they would build a, a treehouse, something to get them up off the, off the floor of the, uh, of the, uh, the jungle area out there, uh, to get them up off the floor a little bit. And they would set up a little camp there, and they would attempt to reach the Auckland's personally. And after they set that up, they got back in the plane, and a, a few of them flew back over the village, and, and they shouted out um, that, uh, come down to the river. On the third day, a group of three Auckland's came, man and two women. They went over and they ushered them across the river to their campsite. They, they ate with them. They gave them food. They gave them drink. They, they gave them gifts. And that evening, the Auckland's went back to their village. They didn't invite the missionaries to come back with them. Now, you can imagine this missionary team of five men are, are awfully excited that, that God has made first contact and, and they're looking forward to, to what's going to happen here. And so uh, they, they're waiting for these Auckland's to return. That was on Friday. On Sunday, Nate Saint called his wife on the radio, and he said this. He said that there's a big group of Auckland men coming just in time for church service. This is a big day, he said. I'll call you back this afternoon and let you know what happens. Nate Saint never called back. Ten Auckland's with spears in hand killed all five missionaries. Now, what you may not know is that the missionaries could have fought back. They were armed. They had guns. But in a conversation that Jim had with his wife, Elizabeth, prior to leaving, she asked Jim if they were attacked, would they use their guns? Jim said, no, we won't. She said, why not? I want you to hear his response. He said, because we are ready for heaven, but they are not. They had guns. They didn't use them. His journal, the, 19, the October 28, 1949 entry, expresses his heart very well. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The good news is the Hawkins did become Christians. That Elizabeth Elliot and other family members traveled to that village and worshipped with the very men who killed their husbands and established an ongoing relationship with them. Now, when we talk about taking missions to the next level, we're not necessarily talking about dying in order to go out and take Jesus Christ to others. But we are talking about a heart that is filled with compassion for the souls of those who don't know Jesus and without him face an eternity in hell. A heart that is so moved that we pray diligently, that we give sacrificially, and that we go wherever we're called, whether it's a remote village in Ecuador or whether it's to the person next door. But it begins not with a touching story, not with a special missions offering, not with a sign-up sheet to go to the Dominican Republic. It begins with the heart. Are we willing to accept God's truth that people are eternally lost apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's our challenge. Knowing that, 
What will we do?